Uh, Last week we looked at Ephesians 1. We started and we read verses 1 through 14. I'm taking pretty good-sized chunks of Scripture. I want to take a a big-picture view of this chapter. Basically, verses 1 through 14 gave God a lot of glory for our salvation. It's all the things he did in a planning way, in a redemptive way, in a forgiving way. But now Paul is going to take this church that has been heard the gospel, they believe the gospel, they got baptized, they joined this local church, and he's going to pray for this church in chapter 1, and the prayer is recorded in the second half of chapter 1. Now, I want you to notice that um, if you would turn forward a little bit, in chapter 3, there's a second prayer Paul offers for this church, which is remarkably different than this first prayer. We'll probably get to that in about two or three weeks. But this first prayer is offered up, and the focus is very narrow. Okay, so let's read it. And then we'll, we'll, we'll read the whole thing, and we'll double back, and we'll pull out some, some, some points from there. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him, that fulfilleth all in all. When you look at this particular passage, you'll notice in verse 17 that he's asking for the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of revelation, in the knowledge of him. In verse 18, he's asking for enlightenment, and he's also asking that she may know what is the hope of his calling. It sounds like he's asking for Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, head stuff. Amen? And then basically from 19 on, he's asking what that head stuff is about. And we'll double back and and kind of flesh that out. But I do want to show you something, and I'll not read this today. But in Ephesians chapter 3, he offers up a second prayer. You three ought to recognize this one. You probably heard it every Monday for four years of high school. But in Ephesians 3, here's another one. It says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father. And there's a second prayer offered up for these people. We'll cover this in a future time. So what I want you to notice is Paul, in the, and I found no other church epistle that was like this. So in Ephesians, he offers up one prayer in chapter 1. In chapter 3, he offers up a second chapter, I mean, a second prayer in chapter 3. And then when we go forward to Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2, I want to read that real quick, though. Let's go to chapter 2 in Revelations 1. And this is to the church at Ephesus. This is a whole generation later. Okay? So, so let's get the picture. 
Paul's writing a church. He's writing to a bunch of believers. They've been converted. They're joining a member of a, they're members of a New Testament church, and he writes them, and he's saying, I'm praying for knowledge. And then one generation goes by, and Jesus Christ writes this church, and he gives them some good things, and he gives them some things that they need to work on. And my question to you is, what did Paul pray for that they actually got? What did Paul pray for that they didn't get? Or what did Paul pray for they got, but then they forgot and they backslid or they just, it was short-lived and it didn't stick? And you think, wow, that's a lot to keep track of. Well, the whole goal here is for us to hold up a mirror and say, which one are us? And where are we like them? Amen? Okay, so that's our goal. So let me read Revelations chapter 2. They did some good things, right? They did some good things. But they also did one thing that was pretty wrong. So Revelations chapter 2, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's figurative language. That's talking about Jesus Christ. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou cannot bear them which are evil and how hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has had found them liars and has borne and has patience for thy name's sake has labored and has not fainted. It's real interesting in chapter 3 in about verse 8, Paul's praying for them and he says, I pray that you faint not And here it is a generation later, and Jesus said, you didn't faint. So that's one of the things that stuck. But, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to thee quickly, and will remove the candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. But this thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Hmm. Think about it. Think about it. They started off, and Paul was bragging on them for their love. And over here, looks like they're hating okay. That sounds funny, doesn't it? Their hate is on, right? But they left their first love. Did you know it's actually biblical to hate evil? I know it sounds like in our modern society, hate, really? Isn't God all about love? Yes, he is all about love. That's why he sent his son to die for you. But there are some things that we are to hate. And evidently, they were good at hating, but they left their first love. The loving is what they needed some work on. So with that being said, we know where they started in Ephesians 1. We know where they ended up a generation later in Revelations 2. And let's go back and look at this prayer request to see if it's an applicable prayer request for us. Now, one of the things I want you to notice is in verse 2, it says, I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience, thou hast cannot bear them that are evil, and tried them. They were doctrinally accurate. So this prayer for knowledge and understanding and wisdom and revelation and enlightenment that we just read, it looks like they got it. But what's the problem? I don't think it ever made the 18-inch drop. That's right. It was here, 
but it didn't go to here. Amen? All right. So let's go back to the prayer, and let's look at it. I'm going to break up this prayer. We're back in Ephesians 1. We're looking at 15 through 23. That's the second half of the chapter. And I've broken it up into three sections. Three sections. The first two verses are kind of a description of that church, and this is a description we can find of many New Testament churches. Let's look at this. It says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of all the saints. Those are characteristics of a lively church. We can go to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4, and it, Paul's bragging on this church, and he says, Since we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have all towards saints. In order for that church at Colossae, they were right on. And the evidences of that, their faith and their love. Same thing of Thessalonian, the Thessalon church at Thessalonica. He was bragging them. He says, I know thy labor of love, and I know thy work of faith, right? And thy patience and hope. He's bragging on them for faith and hope. Matter of fact, one of the things about the Thessalonian church I just find remarkable, he bragged on that church of their faith and love. This is all in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And he says, we preached unto you, and your faith and your love was so strong that when we went to neighboring sitters, we didn't even have to preach. Your testimony of faith and love was so strong, you converted them before we ever got there. And then in 1 Thessalonians, to that group that had faith and love that was that strong, that were converting other people, he said, okay, guys, dial it up. I want you to crank up the faith, and I want to crank up the love. So when we go to 2 Thessalonians, you know what it says? You did it. You bounded in faith, and you just overflowed in love. They actually achieved it. So this church right here, at Ephesus, Paul's getting word of this New Testament church that just got started, and the word that comes back is they've got faith and they've got love towards people, and he says, I'm so excited about you, I'm praying for you. I wish they could say that of us. You think they can? I hope they can say. That little bitty group, boy, they had faith and love. That's, that, that, that's a good testimony, Okay? Matter of fact, it's not only just good for people, I'm sorry, it's not only just good for a congregation, but it's good for individual people. In 1 John 4, 7, Scripture says, Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. In 1 John 5, 1, he says, Everyone whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In other words, both of them are evidences of being a fruit of the Spirit, of being evidences is that seal that you're abiding in God. We want both of them. We want it here, and we want it here. I've been in churches that just had it here. But you know what? I've been in churches that just had it here. We need it both places, right? Emotionalism, right? It only goes so far. Intellectualism, that only goes so far. You need both of them. Both of them are both going to leave you dry. And this is what he's saying about that church. Okay? He says, because I see these two fruits, wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love to all the saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you my prayers. I'm so thankful for you. Those two evidences, they just glorify God. 
Okay, so that's the first part. That's kind of the introduction, but here comes the actual prayer. Now, the next part of the prayer I want to focus in on is these next two verses, 17 and 18. Let's look at those. Okay. Look what he's asking for these people. Now, the reason why I want to stress this, it looks like when we read Revelations chapter 2, they arrived. Remember, there's people that came in, they preached, they checked their Bibles, which is a good thing. They found out they were doctrinally incorrect. They said, you're, you're, a, fake, you're a fake apostle. You need to leave. And, and, and Jesus bragged on them. Isn't that a good thing? The answer is, yeah. But it says, thy left, thy first love. So evidently, something was going on here that was good. But over here, something was missing. So let's read this. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, I want to go, time out. When, when we see a prayer like this, we're talking about people that don't know God. But that's not what it says. In the beginning, when we read Revela- I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, go back and look at verse 8 and 9. What does it say in verse 8 and 9? In 8 says, Wherein he hath abounded toward us all wisdom and prudence. The Ephesians already had all wisdom and prudence. In verse 9 it says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. They were already aware of the mystery. So why do people like that need more wisdom and revelation and knowledge? They do. These, these, are, these people heard the gospel... They believed, they got baptized, they got converted, they joined themselves to the New Testament church, and Paul's praying for wisdom for them. You know what that means? It means we've never arrived. And the day you think you've arrived just shows you haven't arrived. It's funny, I'm going to use a little parallel here. We have broken up the church into four groups of ladies, four groups of four. And we've assigned these four ladies different parts of this building to just take a look at it and see what needs to be done. And, and, and we, in the groups of four ladies in these four groups, we grab some from 20-something, 40-something, 50-something, and 80-something, okay? We want to make sure that The place is inviting the young people, but we want to make sure we don't run over tradition. And it's been real exciting seeing and hearing about these lady meetings. I hadn't been to one of them. All I know is my daughter Emma came back. I don't know what day it was Thursday. I'm going to tell on Sister Rhoda. I hope I don't embarrass you. But she said, look, the 20-something to Sister Rhoda. I looked up, and all of a sudden she was hauling pews all over the church building. I'm glad she did it. Because what happened was there used to be pews against that wall over there and it exposed something. We got a little bit of a problem there. I don't know what the problem is. I think it might be foundational. But it looks like the wall's starting to pull away from the floor. Okay? It's right around right where Brother Doug is, right over there. Now, my point is, we could patch it up 
seeing it's causing a little bit of split over there. We could patch it up. We could replaster. We can sand. We can paint. We could make it nice and pretty. Amen? And what would happen? It'll crack again later on because there's, the foundation is probably wrong. So we can make it cosmetic. We can do all the cosmetic things possible. But unless we get that foundation wrong, it's just a temporary band-aid that's not going to fix anything. So when he's praying for this, it looks like there's some, here, some things here, but that foundation needs to be established. And when we read what he wants to have wisdom and revelation and knowledge and understanding and enlightenment and knowing, when we find out what those things are in the next few verses, we'll see that's the foundation. That's what establishes it us. So, so whatever we do cosmetically to this building, it don't mean anything unless our foundation is solid. And you know I'm talking spiritually speaking now, right? Okay. So, so Paul, what is it you're going to bear down on here the next couple verses that evidently one generation later in Revelations 2, something didn't take? That's, that's what we're here. And ultimately we're, not, ultimately, we're not looking down our noses saying, oh, look at what that church did. What a terrible thing. We would never do that. No, the whole time we're doing it is we're holding up a mirror and we're saying, where have we done that? Or where have I done that? Okay, that's what the whole goal is. Got it? All right. So here it is. Let's read 17 and 18 again. This is a request for wisdom and knowledge and understanding that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I want wisdom and revelation and I want to know God. Okay? That the eyes of your understanding be enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Sounds like it's pretty simple. I want to know him and I want to know his promise for me. Is that all? That's all. Well, what if we do know him and we do keep in mind his presence and his promises? Do you think we'd be so worried about all that's going on in our country right now? Do you think we'd be getting so worked up? I think if you're one of those who's listening to radio all the time and getting all worked up and not sleeping over this stuff, you probably forgot who he was because this is what he's focusing on. Okay? All right, so let's move on to the the guts of the prayer. Okay? Let's go to 19 through 23. This is what he's praying for, for the church, they would have more knowledge. And and real quickly, I've done this before, especially when we've ever been in Proverbs. What's the difference between knowledge and understanding and wisdom? I kind of think there's a hierarchy. Knowledge is kind of the lowest form. When I think of knowledge, I think of facts and figures and formulas and data. Okay? Knowledge is having it up here. Understanding is take it to another level, and that's taking the factors and the facts and figures and being able to recognize it in certain situations and know where it probably applies. Okay? So I may have memorized something. But if I've memorized just a bunch of facts and figures, but I can look at, okay, maybe I, I, I'm, I'm looking at Brother uh, Brian right now. Brother Brian's 
likes to tinker with, with, with vehicles. And maybe I know everything about a carburetor. Okay? But if I can't look at an engine and see where it's going wrong and recognize what's going on, I, I can't put it to use. But there's another level above understanding, and that's actually having had the experience of doing it many, many times. I may look and say, I think that applies to here, and if we do this, we'll do it. And then Brother Brian comes along, yeah, I've done that a hundred times. Yeah, this is exactly, but when you do that, be careful of this because this could happen. Do you understand the difference? Well, that's what he's praying. He's praying for knowledge and understanding and wisdom. It's it's kind of three levels. Okay? So we want knowledge and understanding and wisdom for these things. Verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave to him to be head of all things, which is the body, the fullness of him. I kind of cheated. It's a little color-coded. What do you think the emphasis of that section of scripture is? 19, 20, 21, and 22, and 23. Basically, if you had to summarize what that's saying, I want you to have knowledge and understanding and wisdom of what? Jesus is the boss. That's what it is. I want you to be grounded in the fact that Jesus is supreme. He's sovereign. He's your king. Look at those phrases again. The greatness of his power, the working of his mighty power, his own, set him down at his own right hand, above all principality, above all power, above all might, above all dominion. He put all things under his feet. He is the head of over all things, and it's the fullness of him. So I'm praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you'll know that Jesus is the boss. Is that all? Okay. Think about all the things we've prayed for thus far this year. Can you believe it's already August? Isn't that something? It's already August. Think of the things we've prayed for. Maybe it's these illnesses. Okay. Jesus is the boss. Maybe it's some medical condition that doctors can't dial it in on you. Jesus is the boss. Maybe you've got a wayward teenager. Or maybe not even a teenager, older than that. Jesus is the boss. Amen? Maybe you had a relationship that went sour. Jesus is the boss. Right? Maybe you don't like the president. Maybe you don't like the last president. It doesn't matter. Jesus is the boss. Right? And we got to know that. So, when Paul prays this prayer, he's asking specifically them, look at all those things he was asking for, wisdom and revelation and knowledge and enlightenment, in one fine-tuned area. Jesus is the boss. That's it. It's a simple message. Is it? But it's the one we forget most often. 
okay, let's let, let's 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 work our way through this. I got some things I, I like to, to to tell you. Okay. <clears throat> Not only does he want us to know that he's the boss, he would like us to keep in mind his promise. It's interesting. There's a New Testament book. It's called First Thessalonians. It's a couple books after this one. And it has five chapters. And every chapter ends with a reminder that Jesus is coming back to scoop us all back. You know someone facing cancer? Jesus is coming back. And, and, and the life that we have here is nothing but a vapor. Now, I'm so excited the three of you are here. And you're thinking, I can think back. I can think back to my college days. And it seems like a nanosecond ago. And I can think back to my son, who's back there right now. He's already been out of college 10 years. If my days seem like a nanosecond, his are even shorter than that. Life goes by that fast. And, 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 and Jesus is the boss. He's the boss over that life for the wife you pick. He's over the boss over the way you raise your children. And you know what? Sometimes he blesses you despite yourself. He's the boss over your career. He's the boss. We look to him. Amen? Okay. So let's go back and read this again, thinking about us at Mount Olive. Think about the prayers and the prayer requests and the things that we're worried about. We may have an elderly parent with Alzheimer's. Amen? Maybe there's a a relative with, with cancer. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? He's got power over the whole world, but he's got a special relationship with his believers. According to the working of his mighty power, speaks the word, the world comes into existence, which he wrought in Christ, which he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Jesus Christ is sitting on the right hand of God. Sometimes you call out to him and you feel like he can't even hear you. He's not paying attention. He's at the right hand of God. We've got to remember that's where he's at. Far above principalities and powers and Democrats and Republicans. No, that's not what it says. Far above principalities and powers and might and dominion. Local, state, federal, worldwide. He's ahead of all those things. And every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the one which is to come. That puts things into perspective too, amen? And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So something was going on with this church at Ephesus that they had the doctrine down. He prayed for wisdom and power and they had that doctrine. They could out-debate anybody. They might even be able to quote some Greek on you. Amen? Amen? 
but they left their first love. What happened? They forgot who Christ was. They forgot his powerful position. They forgot where he was. And I want you to show, I just I want to go, if you have your Bibles, let's, what do you think comes after this verse? It's the bread and butter if you believe in total depravity. Amen? Ephesians chapter 2, 1. It says, and you who were dead. And you who were dead. How can I possibly elevate myself when I understand I was dead and God reached down and picked me up? He didn't throw a rope in to pull me out. Because dead people don't grab ropes. He put the ladder in the pit, went down in there, tossed me over his back, climbed the ladder and brought me out. That's the God we serve. And sometimes we get so elevated in our thinking. And when we get that elevated, we forgot who he was. We got to stay humble in that way. Amen? Okay. So with that being said, I want to read some, some I want to go to 1 Thessalonians. And I'm going to read the last couple of verses of each. We're, we're, we're getting real close to the end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me read the last verse. He's talking to this church and he's bragging on them. And you know what he says? He says, by the way, we're here to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, which delivered us from the wrath to come. In other words, we don't serve idols. We're living in a godly way. Why? Because we're waiting on Jesus. Chapter 2. We go to chapter 2 and it says, What is our hope and our joy and our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord at Jesus Christ at his coming? What is our joy? We're waiting on Jesus. Chapter 3. To the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all saints. You know how we're established? In his coming. Chapter 4. The Thessalonians church had a problem with the resurrection. They had a problem. They didn't believe it. And Paul was doing, he was saying, everything you do practically and spiritually points to the resurrection. Chapter 4. This is the one that you always read at the funerals. This is where Jesus comes back with a shout, with a voice of a trump, of the archangel, and, and which are alive, they remain, they're caught up together in the clouds. You know what it's, how it closes? Verse 18, it says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. At a funeral, these are good words. These are comforting. Jesus is coming back. And I guess I lied. Chapter 5 doesn't end with the resurrection. It starts with it. But it's here too. Now, let me tell you what happened. Okay? We went from 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians. And in one way, I'm going to brag on this church because they said, you had great faith, you had great love, crank it up. And in 2 Thessalonians, they had great faith and they cranked it up and they had great love and they even elevated it. Praise the Lord. But they were a little bit off in the resurrection. So he preached the resurrection to them. And guess what happened? They said, we're going to wait on Jesus. And we're not going to do anything. 
You're like, what happened? They were lazy and they wouldn't work. They said, oh, Jesus is coming back. We don't need to do anything. And we read the end of chapter 3, and he says, you don't work, you don't eat. So somehow they got so intellectual, they forgot the application. And I think we're getting a little bit of insight of what happened at the church at Ephesus. Because what happened was, is they had intellectually up here, but they forgot to put it in their shoe lever where it dropped down and they started affecting other people. Amen? So what I would like us to do as we go forward, I'm encouraging you to read ahead. Read chapter 2 and read chapter 3. He made this prayer in chapter 1 and it looks like it's all intellectual. And it is intellectual. But I think all intellectual got them in trouble in Revelation chapter 2. That's why... He also turned around and prayed the prayer in chapter 3, which is also, this is the 18-inch drop. That's what we're talking about. So, tune in, come back next week, and we'll find out how he gets us there. Okay? So may the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless us that remember that Jesus is the boss. Amen? And if we can remember that, our trials in this life will be kept in perspective. And if we can remember that, we won't get full of ourselves with our knowledge and our debating abilities. We'll be trying to hone in on him.